to dive back into the Gospel of John. Um, if you've been with us, you know we've been tracking through, and I think we finished um, the end of December. So we haven't been back, actually, uh, for the month of January. Took a break, did a couple things uh, for New Year, and uh, had a prayer time, and then um, Bobby taught last week. Um, but we're going to get back into the Gospel of John. I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 5. Uh, we are entering a new stage of, of the Gospel here, and... Uh, That's the outline, more of a simple outline this morning. So it's a story we're going to be in this morning. And if you've uh, been with us, you know um, sort of where we've been. Um, The first four chapters of the Gospel of John, uh, we said are sort of one unit. They're a whole section. Um, They're bookended. Sort of like a sandwich, like an inclusio, with two signs that Jesus performs. Uh, There's the changing of water into wine, and then there's the healing of the official's son at the end of chapter 4. And it's sort of like a sandwich, okay? And everything in between is is related in some way. And there's a few points that we were making um, in these four chapters. Do you remember sort of any of the the main themes that really dominated these four chapters of John? Before we jumped into chapter 5. Like I said, chapter 5 is going to be taking us in a new direction now uh, in the gospel. Um, you remember some of the main themes we talked about? Chapters 1 through 4? <clears throat> Been a while. What it means authority. to believe. Good, what it means to believe. Is that what you're saying as well? I, I was or, saying the authority of Jesus. The authority of Christ, good, good. Yeah, his authority is coming. It's God's representative speaking to man. Um, the, the theme of faith It's a massive one. We said really like every section in chapters 1 to 4 mentions believing of some kind. It's either a true faith. It also talks a number of times about a false faith. People that believe there's something significantly wrong with their faith. They come to Christ because they saw signs. Because they wanted him not as the Messiah he came to be uh, for some other reason. Uh, We also see faith developing and growing. Every time someone is said to truly believe, they go on to a, a deeper, more profound faith. Christ. And so John's really developing a theology of, of believing in these first four chapters. Real faith in Christ. Um, it's excellent. Good. What else? What else did we learn in these, in these four chapters? Really learned the primary purpose of his, of his coming. Um, all of his signs that he performs. People are enamored by the signs. We're going to see that again this morning. Uh, they like the signs. They like, man, this guy can really give us stuff. He can make wine. He can heal. He can do all this stuff. But they fail to see the purpose of the signs. The signs were meant to point beyond themselves to the person of Christ, who he is, and what he's come to provide, eternal life. Um, but man is not really concerned about that because they're not really concerned about their sin. And that's really what we're going to see this morning, um, the sign Christ does. So the first four chapters, chapters are really unpacking the purpose of his coming. Um, God so loved the world that he sent his son, not the first time to judge the world, but to provide eternal life. And then number three, we also learn about the ultimate goal of Christ's coming. So do you remember this? We talked about this a couple times. So yes, he came for salvation, but that's not an end in itself. So often we think that's the end goal. It's not. Do you remember what the end goal was? Seeks worshipers. Worshipers. Excellent. 
That's where it's all going. So think of the woman at the well. He comes, he offers her living water, which represents the new birth, what he was talking to Nicodemus about. But where does that go? It goes to a conversation about worship. The Father is after worshipers. He's after people who are devoted to him, who are enslaved to him, who are centered around his new temple, Jesus Christ, worshiping the Father. That is the end goal of salvation. That's the end goal of eternal life. It's the end goal of the living water that he gives to this woman. Um, Christ is passionate about the worship of his Father. And he's come to inaugurate a new age with a new covenant people and a new temple related to the Father through him. Um, so that's really the first four chapters. So th th those three themes are, are very, um, very big. Well, now, like I said, we come to this new section in John, John 5 through John 12. Things are going to change now. So, so far, Christ has not been received correctly by most of the Jews. He's been a little bit stiff-armed, like by Nicodemus, not believed. But now the opposition is going to escalate. And these chapters, 5 to 12, is really going to sort of zoom in for us and show us why Jesus is going to be put to death. It's in the plan of the Father that he's going to be put to death. But where does this opposition come from? Why are they hating him so much? That's really what these 12 chapters are going to do. They're going to show us the opposition. They're going to show us why they hate him so much. Um, so look with me at John <clears throat> chapter 5, um, verses 1 through 18. And we get this story. And this story is really going to be the springboard um, for the rest of these chapters. They're going to be talking about the events of this story well into chapter 7. Um, so this is very significant what happens this morning. We're going to go in, try to understand the story, make a couple implications from it for you, uh, but just know we're, we're sort of laying a foundation this morning of, of this event. It's a very significant thing that, that took place. I've titled it um, Two Scenes Which Explain the Person of Christ and the Purpose of His Coming. What he's going to do this morning is very intentional. Everything Christ does is intentional. It's an intentional time. It's an intentional place. It's an intentional sign. And the purpose is to reveal why he's here, what kind of Messiah he's come to be. He's not just come to be a sign worker. Um, he's going to make that crystal clear this morning. And he's also come to do something on a certain day of the week in order to reveal something magnificent about his person. Um, so that's what we're after. What is Christ, what is the purpose of his coming? What implications does that have on my life today? And what is there about his person? We want to see his glory this morning. And he's going to show us both of these things. So let's begin. In verses 1 to 15, he gives us a purposeful sign. Purposeful sign. And in verses 1 to 9, we really get the, the, the story about this, about this sign. Um, look at the, the first five verses. He it, it, it gives us the setting. It says, after this, there was a feast of the Jews. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So... First four chapters, we already saw him make a journey to Jerusalem. He goes back again to a feast. Um, we don't know what the feast is, uh, probably because it's not significant for this story. The next few stories, it's going to talk about the feasts. Um, all these chapters, 5 to 12, are, are organized around the feasts. But now verse 2, it says, There is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. And in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid 
for 38 years. So Jesus is back in Jerusalem, and while he's there, he goes to this pool. It's located just north of the temple. Um, I've been there. If you've been to Jerusalem, uh, to Israel, you've probably gone there. You can still see the ruins um, just north of the where the temple mount is. Um, you can bring it up on Google Earth. I did the other day. You can just see it right there. And uh, most people are pretty sure that's where it is, um, right outside the temple. Um, but it was a place that not many people went to. Um, it's this pool, and it's packed full of these people who are sick. It says there's a multitude of invalids, um, literally of, of sick people, um, have all kinds of issues um, and problems are there. There's probably hundreds of people packed into this pool. There, there's sick people, the caretakers who bring them there, um, a lot of people. Down in verse 13, you can see that um, it says Jesus has withdrawn because there was a crowd in this place. Um, tons of people in this, in this area. Well, what are they doing there? You can probably see in your, in your text that verse 4 is missing. Who has a translation in here that has a verse 4? Um, okay, you have KJV? Okay. Who has a NASB? I'm pretty sure NASB has it included. So KJV does, NASB does, okay? Um, so what's going on here? You can see verse 4 is missing from most modern translations. Um, it's missing because it's not found in the oldest and most reliable manuscripts. Um, it, it's most likely not original to the Gospel of John. It was probably added by a scribe later. Well, the first time we actually see this verse is, I think, in the 5th century um, in, in manuscripts. The reason it's there is it's probably added in order to bring some clarification, to give some background to the text, to make sense. So drop down to verse 7. It says, The sick man answered him, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going down, another steps down before me. So what in the world does that mean? What, what's going on here? Uh, why is this water being stirred up? And how is it being the first one in? Um, verse 4 was probably inserted to give a little background, to make sense out of what is going on. So it reads something like this. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in, was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. In other words, this is probably a common superstition of the time. I don't think this actually was an angel that went down and, and stirred the, the water. Um, it's, it, most people suppose now that this pool was fed by an underground spring, and at times it would intermittently jet out water causing a bubbling a stirring of, of the water probably had um, minerals properties uh, healing properties people still go to natural baths for for healing um, so it's the most common explanation of the phenomenon at that time was an angel of the lord came down would stir it and the first person to get on to the water would receive healing um, so this most likely was not a part of john's gospel it's probably a superstition at that time um, and it tells us why are there so many people there Tons of people, hopeless condition, um, sick, all kinds of diseases. They're packed into this place and they're trying to get in, be the first person into the pool um, to, get, to get healing. And there's a man there. Look at verse 5. He's been an invalid for 38 years. That's a long time. Let that sink in. 30 
eight years. I'm not 38 years old. <laughs> it's more than my life. Right? That's a long time, right, um, to be in this condition. We don't know what's wrong with him. Seems he's at least lame um, from what we see a, bit, a little bit later in the story. And he's probably been brought there pretty regularly. A caretaker brings him, drops him off in an attempt that maybe he could get in to this, to this pool. Well, that brings us to verses 6 to 9. That, uh, that's all background. Now we get to the story in verses 6 through 9. And uh, this is the sign. Look at verse 6. When Jesus saw him laying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed. Remember, this place is packed full of sick people. And Jesus finds this man. This man. This one person. Tons of there are hundreds of people here. And he picks this one. Right? He's intentional. John's already showed us this before. Think back to chapter 4. Where else has Jesus done this? The woman where? At the, at the well. I have to go to Sychar, he says. Why? There's a woman there. The Father has appointed someone there for me. Um, he's intentional, always going after individuals. Um, it's what he does here. The Father has given him a mission. He's on a, he's on a mission for people, certain people. But why else does he find this man? Look what it says. It says, Jesus seeing him laying there and knowing that he had already been there a long time. This is supernatural knowledge here. Jesus knows about this man. He knows everything about this man. Um, 38 years, Jesus knows him. He looks around this crowd, picks this man out, and he knows he's already been there a long time. It's supernatural knowledge. And we're going to see later in the story how that is good news. Christ knows everything about your life. Your deepest, darkest sin, everything about your past, everything about your suffering, and that's very good news. Because <laughs> he's a good savior. He's compassionate. We just see his compassion here. If he wasn't, that would not be good news. But he is. This man's hopeless, and he's sinful, and Jesus is overflowing in compassion to him. He knows he's been there for a long time, and he seeks him out. Look what he says to him. He says, do you wish to be made well? It's kind of a funny thing to ask a sick person, right? Well, you know, isn't that kind of obvious? Um, what, what are you asking him that for? It's probably in order to, to get this man to talk, um, to get him to expose where, where he's looking. Where, where, where's your hope for, for healing at? And to, to really set the stage now for what Christ is, is getting ready to do. And, and look what this man says, verse 7. Chris asks him, do, do you want to be healed? This man says, well, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. When I'm going down, another steps down before me. Um, and this has probably been going on for many years. <laughs> Frustration and um, this, this vain superstition. This is only hope. Um, a life consumed with his sickness and a life consumed with an attempt to fix the sickness. Um, and um, look what Jesus does. It's amazing. This man doesn't know who Jesus is. This man has zero faith in Jesus. Doesn't respond in any way to elicit Christ's compassion. Look what Jesus does. Verse 8. Jesus said to him, get up. Take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. 
This man's in this condition for 38 years, and the point is, in an instant, at the word of Christ, 38 years of sickness immediately cured. Christ speaks in cells and muscle tissue and tendons and nerve endings, and all you doctors and medical people know all that goes into this stuff is immediately restored. Now, this is creator speaking here. John 1, 2, all things were made by him. He speaks and it obeys. Nothing like this has ever happened before. And in each of John's signs in the Gospels, uh, this Gospel, the Gospel of John, um, there's an element of that which is extraordinarily miraculous. So you think of, well, if it's miraculous, it's already extraordinary, right? But John goes out of his way to say, like, these things are just over and above miraculous. Um, think of them. So Jesus changes six 30-gallon water jugs into wine. Not a little bit of wine. Um, six times 30, right? That, that's, that's a lot, right, of, of wine. He instantaneously heals an official son. It says, at that very hour, from a distance of 15 miles away. It's extraordinary. He feeds 5,000 with only five loaves and two fish. He heals a man born blind, not a man who just became blind somewhere in his life, born blind. He raises Lazarus after four days when decay had already begun. Each of the signs are meant to just show that this is creator here. This is beyond any miracles we've seen before in any time in salvation history. And here he heals a man who's been lame for 38 years and in an instant healed. The signs testify to his very identity. Well, what is that? The first thing is that they testify that he is indeed Messiah. Hold your hand here and go back to Isaiah 35 with me. Isaiah 35. What are Jesus' signs testifying? Isaiah 35. And... Um, won't read the, these verses, but verse 1 talks about the restoration of creation, the land, the creation is going to be restored, the glory of God is going to appear. And he calls um, upon Israel to pay attention, God's come to save you. And in verse 5, look at this, the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. There's a promise given by Isaiah to the people of Israel about the end time, about when the new creation is going to dawn. This passage looks forward to the restoration of creation and the removal of the curse. Um, Pastor Farrell's been preaching through Ecclesiastes. The curse is all around us. The day is coming. The Lord is going to remove that curse that's been on creation. And Jesus' miracles are meant to declare that that age has begun. That's what's going on in Christ's miracles. The age that Isaiah is talking about has begun at the coming of Christ. The glory of God has appeared. The Messiah has arrived to accomplish God's purposes and to usher in the kingdom. And the point is that these signs are small glimpses of this future restoration. So it's like the age to come is bursting onto the scene. 
in these signs that Jesus is performing, in these miracles. The, the restoration of creation, you, you're getting little tastes as Christ is performing these, these signs. There's small glimpses at Christ's sovereign power and that he is God's agent to bring the new creation. Okay, so get that. That's very important. The signs are also to declare something else. This sign in particular. Before that final consummation comes to pass, before that new creation, the curse is totally removed. The Messiah has to be opposed. He has to be killed. It's God's plan. And the primary purpose of the signs and the miracles Jesus is going to do is not to remove suffering. Wide scale in this life, in this age. It gives you glimpses. It shows you he's the one that's going to do it. But the point is not mainly the removal of suffering from this life. They exist for two points. And we're going to see that so clearly in our passage. To reveal the glory of his person and to call people to repentance. That's the purpose of the signs. Those two. Show the glory of his person and to call people to repentance. So look at the next two verses. Verses 9b through 13 show us that Jesus intentionally now breaks the Sabbath traditions in order to reveal his identity and expose the hearts of the Jews. Look at the end of verse 9. It says, now that day was the Sabbath. It was Shabbat. And you're thinking, come on, Jesus, don't you know it's, it's Sabbath? The Jews don't like this when you do this. Couldn't you just wait till Sunday? Like, why are you always doing this kind of thing? You read the other Gospels, he's always doing this. Like, why? You just wait a day, right? And it doesn't stir the Jews up. Come on, Jesus. But Jesus is obviously intentional. He's intentionally doing these things on the Sabbath for a purpose. We're going to see what that purpose is. If you're familiar with the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, um, you're familiar. He's always doing these things on, on the Sabbath. This is the first time in John. He's going to do it again in John 9. Um, and it always makes the Jews furious is one of the reasons they're, they're persecuting him. Look at verse 16. It says, this is why the Jews were persecuting him, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So he's intentionally doing it, but why? He did it on the Sabbath on purpose in order to reveal something about himself and to expose the Jews. So what is he trying to reveal? First thing I want to point out is, um, you're probably wondering, well, well isn't the Sabbath a law? Mosaic law. God gave it to Israel like it's a good law. Is Jesus going around, you know, uh, intentionally breaking God's law? Is that what's going on here? And in the other gospel accounts where he does things on the Sabbath. This law of the Sabbath, you're probably aware, it began to have many extra biblical um, regulations attached to it. Um, the Pharisees, the, the goal was to sort of build, Pastor Farrell's talk about, talked about it before, build a fence around the law with extra traditions, extra rules to prevent you from even getting close to breaking the, the Sabbath. So they have the Sabbath law, and then all these other regulations meant to protect you from even getting close to breaking the Sabbath law. Um, the intended meaning from the Old Testament seems to be you don't do ordinary work. You don't do your occupation and ordinary work that you do in the six days on Sabbath. But they began to add other things that um, the Bible didn't define. They began to define what work is and what constituted work. 
And one of the things that constituted work was carrying something from one place to another. Um, there is uh, the oral tradition, it's called the, the Mishnah, you might be familiar with it, it was written, it was sort of codified a few hundred years after Christ, um, but it reflects really most of the teaching probably held at this time, and uh, I was reading it this week, the, the part, it, it describes 39 prohibited acts of labor on the Sabbath, and uh, let me just read you a few of these, uh, it says the principal acts of labor are 40 less 1, Sowing, plowing, reaping, binding into sheaves, threshing, winnowing, fruit cleaning, grinding, sifting, kneading, baking, a um, whole bunch of other things, skip a few, writing two letters, erasing in order to write two letters, building, demolishing in order to build, kindling, extinguishing fire, extinguishing fire hammering, transferring from one place to another. Um, it just goes on and on and on, these details, thing after thing after thing. Um, Laborious. Sort of explains here this transfer in one place from thing from one place to another. It says one who carries out anything in the right or in the left hand, or in his bosom, or on his shoulder, is culpable of breaking Sabbath. Um, and then it goes on with all these other other exceptions. Um, it's a whole host of these of these regulations. And if you're looking for some good bedtime material. It's Mishnah. I mean, man, it is boring and laborious. Um, and you can see why Jesus called these impossible burdens um, that, they, that they laid on the people. These extra biblical things that um, really took away the whole meaning of the Sabbath to begin with. It ceased to be a day of rest. Um, so the first thing we can say is Jesus is not going around intentionally uh, stomping on the law of Moses. He's not intentionally um, disregarding it. This man carrying something on the Sabbath, Jesus, Jesus healing the Sabbath, is not a, a breaking of the original purpose of, of Sabbath. But why does Jesus break the rules here? Um, so there's several reasons. Again, in the Synoptic Gospels, we, we, give a, we get a few um, explanations. Why does he go around doing it then? It makes the Pharisees angry. Can't you just, you know, not stir up so much trouble? You might be received a little bit better. First reason he goes around in order to expose these man-made traditions. They're more committed to their man-made traditions than they are to God's law, and so he intentionally breaks them. He also breaks the Sabbath in order to explain that he's the Lord of the Sabbath, right? He has the authority to interpret the Sabbath correctly. Um, you read that in Matthew. He also breaks the Sabbath because he's the Davidic king. He's the greater temple, and his disciples are a part of his new community. He's fulfilling the Sabbath. And as believers, you are in Christ, no longer under Sabbath regulation. So, so the Matthew, Mark, Luke give us a number of explanations for why he does these things. But what's really interesting is that that is not where Jesus goes in this passage. He doesn't mention any of those for why he is breaking Sabbath. And we're going to get a hint of why this morning, and we're really going to unpack it next week. He breaks the Sabbath, not for any of those reasons here. He breaks it to reveal something absolutely astonishing about his person. Um, and that's what we're going to see uh, in a little bit. So he's intentional. He's breaking Sabbath on purpose to reveal something absolutely amazing about his person. But first, look at verse 10. It says, The Jews said to the man who had been healed, 
it is Sabbath and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. All right, so we just saw that in, in the mission of why that's the case. Um, would have been a serious charge. You could have been liable for the death penalty um, if you had been accused um, clearly as intentionally violating the command. Um, and so this man blame shifts. Look at verse 11. It says, he answered, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. Now look at the irony of what, what happens. The, the Pharisees totally overlook the extraordinary miracle which, which just took place. They're so preoccupied with the regulations being violated, they miss the miracle entirely. Look at verse 12. So he says, the one who healed me said to me, take up your bed. And they asked him, not who's the man who healed you, what? Who is the man who said to you, take up your bed? That's all they care about. Like, this is the most astonishing thing. A person has been healed after 38 years, and they're only concerned with the fact that he told them to break their Sabbath traditions. D.A. Carson says, the Jews hear of the wonderful healing and the formal breach of their code and are interested only in the latter. They think they see what is important, but in religious matters there are none so blind as those who are always certain they see. They're blind. They're blind to the glories of Christ by their commitment to their religious system, which Jesus is tearing down right now. Well, this man didn't know who healed him. Look at verse 13. It says, Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. So Jesus heals him, and he immediately backs away, hides and blends into this crowd of, of people, and Man doesn't know who it was. Why do you think Jesus did that? What do you think? It's what? Not time. It's one, one place is it's not his time yet. Okay. Yep. Yep. Not his time for the full revelation. Okay, for the full revelation of who he is, or for his first crucifixion. Um, it's good. Yep. And also to stir up the conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he knows what's coming. Yep, yep. Think also what would have happened had he stayed there. This is a man, 38 years in his sickness. All these other sick people are sitting around too. They don't have to wait for a stirring of the water anymore. This man just completely restored him to health. What's going to happen? They're going to bombard him. <laughs> hey, come here, Jesus. Don't, you know, uh, we're not going to let you out of here until every one of us get this. So multitude of sick people, and Jesus hides. He pulls away. He doesn't, in other words, want to be known primarily as a healer, as a sick people um, restorer. That's not why he came. He didn't come simply to cure disease. One day he will. That's what Isaiah is about. One day he will. It's evidenced by this sign. That's not the reason he came the first time. The miracles give us small glimpses of what's coming. They reveal his identity. But it's not the main reason for his first coming. He didn't want to be misunderstood. Look at verse 14 through 15. Jesus now finds the man in order to proclaim to him the proper response to his sign. And this really is now where the rubber meets the road. What is the point of this story? Where is it going? How does it apply to us even? Look at verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. 
the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. So Jesus again finds this man for the second time. He tracks him down. This man wasn't looking for Jesus the first time. He had no faith in him. He didn't know who Jesus was. Jesus moved by compassion, shows him grace, heals him from this disease which plagued him most of his life. He could have chosen any of the crowd. He chooses him. And now he tracks him down again to show him more grace and to teach him the reason why he healed him. He says, see, you are well. This man would have recognized Jesus as the one who healed him. Jesus pointed out the fact that you're totally restored. Now let me tell you the reason why you've been restored. Look at what he says. Sin no more, lest something worse happen to you. Most people think that this indicates that this man's sickness was the result of some sin in his past, and that, that's probably the case. Um, later, we're going to read about the man born blind. That's not the case. Remember, the disciples said, who sinned? This man or his parents said he was born blind, and Jesus said, neither. Not all sickness and suffering is the result of a specific sin. It's for the glory of God. That would be the error of Job's friends. Um, you're suffering? There must be sin in your, in your life, right? But it's also true that some suffering is the result of consequences, right? Of sinful choices. And that seems to be what is, what is going on here. And if that's the case, it highlights the great grace of Christ all the more. He tracks this, tracks this man down to heal him, not only because of the length of time of the suffering, but the fact that it was because of his sin. Jesus loves to show grace to sinners. It's amazing. He does this miracle on one suffering the consequences of his actions. In other words, this is the most undeserving of the people that was there that Christ tracks down. And he shows him lavish grace. It's amazing. Is that how you think of Jesus? Is he cold to you? Is he, is he stingy with grace to you? Is he slow to show mercy? Is that how you think of him? Or do you know him as one who's so tender-hearted, so full of compassion, that he's even aroused to compassion by your sin? That's what he tells us. It's amazing. And he loves to track down the most unworthy and lavish them with his power and with his grace. That's what's going on here. What does he tell him? Look, look what, it, what, what happens. So far this man doesn't know who Jesus is. He doesn't know why he healed him. And so Jesus tells him, sin no more. The idea here obviously isn't absolute perfection, right? Be absolutely perfect. Now, that's not what it's talking about. You, you know that from all the rest of John's writings. The idea is cease from a life devoted to sin. Cease from a life that's patterned with sin. Turn from the very sin that got you into this suffering to begin with. Cease with your life of sin. The purpose of grace is to call us to repentance. That's the point. The point is see how good and kind Jesus is and let that drive you away from your sin. Jesus is saying, do you want to know the point of the sign? And of all my signs, you don't want to know why I healed you this way. So that you would turn from your sin. That's Jesus' point. 
And look at the rest of the verse. Lest something worse happen to you. What's that? What could be worse than 38 years of suffering a terrible disease? Well, something much worse. Look at John 5, 28. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. There's a judgment coming. There's something much worse than 38 years of sickness. Eternal judgment. That's much worse. Stop sinning, he says, lest something much worse happen to you. The final judgment. Jesus says your sin has led to this suffering and your sin will lead to eternal suffering. Is what he says. And the reason I healed you is to point you to me. Your biggest problem is not this 38 years of infirmity. Your biggest problem is a life of sin. I've come to call you to repentance, to look to me, to provide salvation from eternal suffering and to transform your nature. To look to me. Turn from your life of sin. The question is, how has Christ shown grace in your life? He has shown you countless grace in many ways, innumerable ways. If you're a believer, special grace, and the purpose of all of it is to call you to turn from a life of sin. That's why he came. That's also why none of the people wanted anything to do with his message. They're excited for his signs, but man, when he started speaking, I don't want that. It's not my biggest problem. My biggest problem is I need bread. I need healing. My suffering in this life. And Jesus says, no, it's not why I came. It's not the point. It was meant to call people to recognize the presence of Messiah and to repent from their sin because something much worse than the suffering of this life is coming. That's his point. So let me ask you, have you forgotten that this is the main purpose and implication of Christ's first coming? It's the main purpose. This age is not the age where sickness and suffering are removed. Look around us. There is sin and evil. Ecclesiastes everywhere. Suffering, pain. And if you're not in it now, it's coming for you. It's coming for me. And uh, it's why Christ will come. He's coming and he's going to fix it. The signs give us a glimpse. Like he's the one. He's going to restore it. That's not the purpose of his first coming. He's come to deal with the greater issue first. Eternal suffering. And sometimes he does work miracles. Sometimes he does heal. It's fine to pray for that. The point is that even those things are meant to call us to look beyond them. To the true thing he came to provide. Deliverance from sin. So often in the world, um, even believers, we start to think the difficulties in our life are the biggest problem. And Jesus tells us it's not. So the question is, what's the main priority in your life? If you could just step back and, and examine the pursuits of your life, what are they? Is it mainly, examine your prayers, is it mainly about the removal of suffering, of trials? Again, there's nothing wrong with that. None of us want that. It's fine to pray that. But is that the only thing you're pursuing in your life? Or is there an opposition to sin? That's it. That's the purpose of his coming, to transform your hearts, to forgive you of all of it, and to change you to make 
war on sin. That's why he came, to create a new people who do what? Who worship the Father, right? By doing what? Bearing fruit for God. That's why he's come. So look where this story ends. The words of, the, of Jesus still mean little to this man. Look what happens. The man went away and he tells the Jews it was Jesus who healed him. Um, there's no response to Christ, no faith, no repentance, no, no, no thanksgiving, no nothing. He goes away and he tells the, the Jews. Um, why does he do that? It's probably not because he's seeking to, to destroy Jesus. Uh, he's probably trying to get out of the death penalty or, or from being convicted from the Jews for committing this crime, right? If it was him, it was Jesus. Look, I know him now, so, so get me off the hook. In other words, his focus is still earthly. His focus is still on himself. He's missed it. He's preoccupied with his healing. The Jews are preoccupied with religion, and they're both blind to Christ until the purpose was coming. So I just want to press here that, again, you're aware our world is full of suffering. Your life may be filled with trouble. But know that in Christ there's hope. And his return it will all be restored. Look at verse 25 of this chapter. We're almost done. Truly I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Resurrection's coming. And Jesus said it's now here. And the way we experience it now is in the resurrection of our, our souls. New birth new life. And the call is to respond to him as the Messiah he came to be. So what's the application? The application is sin no more. Devote your life to holiness. Devote your life to Christ. That's why he's given you grace. That's why he's lavished you with grace. In other words, the curse has begun to be lifted. The new creation has already begun. How has the new creation begun, guys? It's not begun in Removal of sin and suffering. How's it begun? It's been begun how? In our hearts, the new creation in your hearts. Lives that are now progressively living holy to God. The new creation has begun. It's begun in Christ, and this is how it begins. So devote yourselves to this. Let me finish here. We just got a couple couple minutes to go, one minute to go. Look at verses 16 to 18, and this is where we're going to spend most of the time next week and unpacking it. Why did Jesus break the Sabbath? What was the point? Here it is. Verse 16, it's why the Jews were persecuted him. He was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. He broke the Sabbath in order to reveal something about himself. He said, my father, that's a very intimate term to relate yourself to God. They call God our Father and Father in general, but not my Father in the way that Christ talks here. Look what he says. And this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he was even calling God his own Father. What does that mean? Making himself equal with God. He broke the Sabbath in order to make it clear that just as the Father always continually works and never breaks the Sabbath, so also, I work on the same terms, and I never break the Sabbath. I am equal with God. He's revealing something absolutely astonishing about this person. And we're going to go on the rest of chapter 5, which is going to unpack, really, a Christian monotheism for you. 
a Christian understanding of the Trinity, of Christ, the Son, and the Father working together in the glories of Christ. So this is what this passage is. Why did Christ come? The purpose of his coming, first coming, to save you from your sin. And it's also to reveal the glory of his person, the Son, the true Son of God. Fully God, fully man, to be crucified for your sin. That you would devote your life to bearing fruit or worshiping the Father. So let me pray. Any questions before we pray? Before we go? It's an awesome, it's an awesome story, for sure. But we'll be unpacking it. Okay, let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for its clarity, its piercing accuracy. We're much more sinful, Lord, than we realize, and you know it all. Every bit. And you're not repulsed, you're stirred up to compassion so much so that Christ loved us to the end. Died in Becoming a curse for us. So through faith, every single sin I've ever committed, forgive me. <laughs> And a new heart to love and obey you and serve you and devote my life to holiness. That's why Christ came. Thank you. Help us to remember that. That's our main priority in this life as we await for his return. Help us to be faithful, Lord, to proclaim your gospel to the world suffering and dying around us that this is the greatest need. We love you. Thank you. Praise and be glorified. Prepare our hearts for the service to come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.